and you know it's really just a wall street is just a casino for crass speculators and i think part of what's been heartening for me is that when you look at people like templeton or various other characters that i write about they're profoundly interested in these questions of what it takes to live an honorable good life what constitutes a truly abundant happy successful life and part of that is taking care of other people I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Somewhere in the past few months, I've given up on myself as a self-improvement project, decided instead to appreciate the contradictions, limitations, and uh, quirky character that I've grown into. I've decided to lay to rest the discontent that arose from the opinions, real or imagined, of those I'd like to please or be thought well of. I've utterly failed at manipulating my way into love or acceptance. Every time I've polished up my apple to be pleasing to someone else's eye, it's turned into broken promises and despair. I'm through with attempting to squeeze myself into someone else's frame of what is right and proper, or for that matter, my own, as I can be my most harsh and unforgiving judge. I'm done with becoming 1% better every day, with measuring myself against others, or even myself, of being my own rebuild and remodel project. Leaning on discontent only creates more discontent. Somewhere along the line, I realized perfection was out of the picture, but imagined the effort toward a better version of myself could have some virtue. It doesn't. It's chasing a mirage. It's giving into the voice in my head that will never not be critical. A friend recently pointed out, self-improvement only brings a greater attachment to self. He's right. Strangely enough, it gets a little lonely without the constant voice of disgruntlement. In the world of medicine, we are supposed to always be improving, getting better, being better. Where would the motivation to move forward come from without that constant list of things to do that are aimed at making the world a better place? What if what I've called motivation was a misplaced attempt at love? What if I bought into the lie that it's only through another's acceptance that I'm acceptable? And what if I decided that I no longer needed fixing, loved the gnarled flaws as I would the eccentric characters in a book who were lovably whole in their brokenness? What if I stopped trying to make the world right? And simply let it be, without comment or complaint, simply as it is. To allow for an appreciation of the imperfect, gratitude for what is, and acceptance that my limited human mind frequently is incapable of understanding the complexities of this world. I wonder, would that be giving up or giving in? Sometimes I read a book, and it's not about Chinese medicine, but it illuminates something of the principles in Chinese medicine. Our classic books remind us that the state of mind of the practitioner is not separate from the clinical encounter. And when I read Richer, Wiser, Happier, I was struck by the exploration of the state of mind of masterful investors and how they approached uncertainty and change. And beyond that, how they saw money as a kind of a chi, a resource that flowed or not. 
You know, it's easy to demonize people who are very different from ourselves. But this book gave me a glimpse into the minds of people who are not greedy, but in fact, highly moral, thoughtful, and think way, way outside the box. I'm delighted to share this conversation with William Green, who's the author of this book. William is a writer, and he was surprised to find himself writing about the financial world. It's not what he initially set out to do. I, too, was surprised to find out how much I enjoyed meeting the people through print that he writes about. These Masters of the Universe-level investors actually have something to teach us about presence, character, and fortitude all of which are basic to having an acupuncture practice as well. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast, library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and 
manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. We're going to get into all of this in a moment here. All right, friends, I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation with William as much as I did. I suspect you're going to feel a little differently about your relationship with that curious resource we call money and how it's interwoven with both inner and outer abundance. Let's get into this. William Green, welcome to Geological. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here with you. I am so happy to have you. You wrote a book that has blown my mind. And I want to share this with my audience out here. Uh, the book is called Richer, Wiser, Happier. It's not really about investing, but it's about the mind of investors. You have done a, a fabulous job here. I, I, this thing is like a not a textbook, it's like a guidebook for me, of thinking about wealth, thinking about money, but more than anything else, I hope everybody's ready for this. William has a way of going in and, and interviewing top, like masters of the universe investors, people that are way top of the game. And it reads like something out of a book on Zen. Because these people know something about uncertainty and sitting with it and working with it. So William, I'm delighted to have you here to talk about some of these extraordinary human beings that you've had an opportunity to share some time with. I'd like to know what, what went into creating this book. What got you started on this journey that gives us a glimpse into the minds and really into the hearts of world-class investors? Thank you, Michael. Yeah, in, in a way, it's a surprising journey for me because I, I started off as a liberal arts guy. I, I studied English literature at Oxford and I came out and I thought, yeah, I'm going to be a novelist and I'm going to write, you know, high flutin fiction and everyone's going to admire me for my beautiful prose. And then in my mid-twenties, I came into a little bit of money from selling half of an apartment that my brother and I owned together in London. And so I had this windfall. It wasn't a massive amount because property in London in those days was, was not that desirable. But I... Um, but I had to figure out what the hell am I going to do with this money? And because I was going to be a writer, I didn't have this sense that I was going to have vast sums of money to play with in the future. So I cared. I mean, I knew that I couldn't squander um, this amount of money. And so I started to study the stock market and mutual funds and the like. And much to my surprise, discovered that it was actually pretty fascinating. And I had always had a little bit of a gambling streak. When I, when I was about 15, I used to gamble on horses. 
And I always had this kind of fantasy that you could get rich without getting your hands dirty because I was kind of lazy. And the idea that you could just make money by being kind of clever, using your mind, appealed to me as, as a sort of lazy, smart aleck who didn't want to be listening to a boss, didn't want to be going to an office, didn't want to take crap from anyone. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. You can make money just by thinking. What could be better? But then, then I started to lose money gambling. And I thought, well, this is no fun at all. And so I stopped. And I, I haven't had a bet in a casino or on a horse in more than 30 years, probably even more than that. And But then when I discovered the stock market, I thought, well, this is the real game. This is really cool. Like, like, cause you're not even getting hosed by, you know, um, terrible odds that the, 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 the turf accountant, as they called it in England, euphemistically would give you. And so it's a, it's a better game. The odds aren't against you because over time, the stock market goes up because the country becomes, or, or the world becomes more productive. The economy becomes more productive. There's demographic change. And so, so it's sort of like you're, you're you're riding a rising tide and so it's a so it's actually a pretty good game i thought well this is great i can become financially independent which will bankroll me to do my writing and and so i just really liked the game but then i was in this very unusual position because i'm a writer and i was writing at the time for magazines like forbes and fortune and and money and later for time where i became an editor of the international editions and so i could actually go interview these great investors and so I would read about a fund and I'd read about, you know, some master of the universe. And then I'd actually be like, cool, I can, I can like phone this guy up, e email him and ask to go interview him. And so I would do I'm with Time like, Magazine. Could exactly. I talk to you? And they're like, sure. Exactly. So I got to do these amazing things where that I write about in the book where I would go off, say, to the Bahamas to spend a day in this place, Lyford Key, where Sir John Templeton lived. And Templeton was probably the most... Um, probably the greatest international stock picker of the 20th century and was a very deeply eccentric man. And he lived in this community life at Key where people like the Aga Khan and Sean Connery and, and, and all of these kind of somewhat glamorous people lived. And I would go off and I'd be bankrolled by a magazine to go spend a day with, with Sir John Templeton. And so I would sort of figure out, okay, well, what, why does this tiny elite outperform the market over many years? And so initially I was thinking, well, this is great. I'll learn from these people how to get rich. But gradually what happened, much to my surprise, is that I discovered they were extraordinary thinkers. They were really the cleverest, most rational, most eccentric people I'd ever come across. And, and in some way, like writers, the greatest investors were outsiders. And so to be a successful investor and to outperform the market you have to actually diverge from the crowd. And so in the same way that a writer was always kind of looking, looking at society with their nose kind of pressed up against the window, not as an insider, but as an outsider saying, oh, that's what's going on. The greatest investors were detaching from the crowd and saying, yeah, the crowd are all idiots. They're wrong. They're going in this direction. I'm out thinking them and I'm going to go in this direction. And so I think there was something psychologically that resonated for me about this idea of being an outsider using your brain to outwit the crowd and i'm you know i'm a i'm a jewish guy from from england who went to like these super posh schools like sort of eton and oxford so you were sort of an insider and an outsider i have a birthmark on my face so i was always going to be like a little bit of an outsider and so you're naturally you're kind of looking at the world i so i was sort of 
I was inside, I was up close, but I was always like sort of not part of the crowd naturally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think these guys really resonated deeply with me. And, and over the years, they've become this incredible filter through which I see the world because they're so rational and so pragmatic. Well, they're so my... rational. They're, you use the word eccentric. Mm. And, and, and I like the word eccentric because, well, because I'm a little bit eccentric. And, I, and actually, I think the listeners of this podcast, I think many would cotton to being a little bit, like you were just saying, not really on the inside. In fact, happy to be on the outside. Happy to have an alternative point of it's view. It's alternative medicine. It's alternative medicine. We have another point of view. It doesn't mean it's always right. It just means we get a glimpse of something else because of where we stand. We don't stand in the mainstream. And so we have a way of, of looking at things differently. Now, I think it's the ability to question orthodoxy. So in some ways, I wonder if actually that's why you of all people connected with me in the book is because the greatest investors are actually these tremendous mavericks and iconoclasts and free thinkers. And that's sort of what a writer is having to do. And that's sort of what you're having to do, right? Yes. Well, I want to share something here. You mentioned John Templeton. Mm. And I can remember years and years ago, uh, when I knew nothing about finances, I knew nothing about money, I somehow... I don't know, I was talking to someone about stocks and stuff, and they said, oh, well, just go invest in the Templeton Fund, you'll be fine. Hmm. I had no idea what that meant back then. Now I've got a little bit of a clue. John Templeton was amazing. The thing that gets me about these different investors, and we're going to get into some of these personalities here, because I think it makes a difference. Here's something from, this is from your book. Um, John Templeton wrote, to live successfully in the outer world, it is important to live successfully in the inner world. Friends, associates, opportunities, careers, and life experiences of our outer world are reflections of what's happening within us. Now, this is one of the masters of the universe, eccentric stock people, people that many, you know, a person that many of us might think, oh, they're, they're the enemy. They're this capitalist. They're making money on the backs of, you know, poor people, you know, blah, 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 whatever your story is. And yet... Here's a person who knew that his inner life and his thoughts and the way he approached the world was the key thing to working in that outer world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, let, let, let's dwell on this idea for a moment of anti-capitalism, because I think this is really important. And it's worth getting out of the way. On the one hand, you can be a fund manager who overcharges your customers, takes advantage of them, doesn't give a damn about them, and, and you might as well be selling washing machines or you know um, used cars. On the other hand, if you're someone like Templeton, who is a deeply spiritual guy, you're a custodian of people's life savings. You're actually a custodian of the money that they've set aside for retirement, of the money that they've set aside for their kids' education. And that's a kind of holy trust, right? That's something sacred. And so, like everything, there are doctors and healers who are snakes who are in it for their reputation and their bank account and their social standing. And there are healers and doctors who are in it because they're deeply compassionate and they care deeply about the people they're taking care of. And, and it's the same with writers. It's the same with, with doctors. It's the same with money managers. And so I, I've tended to focus on people who in, in, in my book on people who aren't rapacious 
I mean, they've become immensely wealthy in most cases, but they're people who I think have a profound sense of their responsibility. And I, I regard them almost as like uh, enlightened capitalists. There's a, there's a different way of doing capitalism where you behave ethically, you treat your partners honorably, you care about your customers. And so I, I just like to sort of dismantle that prejudice, which I used to have myself, because when I started writing about investing, I sort of thought, well, these guys are probably, you know, great game players. They're great at enriching themselves, but they're not very honorable people. And, you know, it's really just a Wall Street is just a casino for crass speculators. And I think part of what's been heartening for me is that when you look at people like Templeton or various other characters that I write about, they're profoundly interested in these questions of what it takes to live an honorable good life. What, what, do, what, what constitutes a truly abundant, happy, successful life? And part of that is taking care of other people. And, and so when I first wrote about Templeton, maybe 20 years ago, when I went to do a magazine profile of him, I don't think I really understood him. I was interested in him as a, as a moneymaker, as a game player, which was interesting. But what he kept trying to talk to me about was spirituality. And I was kind of an atheist or agnostic at the time, and I kind of rolled my eyes. And, and over the last, I mean, at one point I said to him, you know, do many people regard you as a kook? And which is a pretty impertinent thing to ask a legendary, iconic investor. And he was not surprisingly was somewhat pissed off with me. Um, but um, gradually, I, this is one of the things I write about in this chapter about Sir John Templeton, is that as I look back now, where my own life has become much more spiritual, I often think he's in, in the upper world looking down, kind of laughing at me, saying, look, I told you. Told you um, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I've tried to explain, this is what I missed in Templeton. And what I really missed, I think, is that he had mastered the inner game of life. He, he understood that you need to gain control over this inner landscape, over your thoughts, your emotions, your time. And one of the reasons why this was the case in, for him is when, when he was fairly young, I mean, he came, he came from a very poor background in Winchester, Tennessee, right? And his, his father wrote to him while he was at, at Yale um, during the Great Depression and said, I literally can't afford a single dollar towards your education. So Templeton came from nothing and ends up becoming a billionaire. And in his, I guess he must have been about 30 or so, his first wife, they were on a trip and his wife fell off a motorcycle on this trip and died, leaving him with three young children to raise. So he had to deal with tremendous hardship. I mean, he he had to gain control over his inner landscape. And he, and he was obsessed with, with this whole kind of um, religious tradition that was very much about gaining control over your thoughts. And so he refused to allow himself to be swamped by any negative emotion. And I think, I think at the time I found him a little cold and austere and judgmental. And in retrospect, I realized that he had this colossal self-discipline. And so there's this connection between investing and things like resilience, mm -hmm. how you deal with failure, how you deal with pain, how you deal with your, neg your negative emotions, your fears, your uncertainty. 
your um, your failures, your setbacks, your disappointments, and because they're so all going to of, show up. Yeah, you know, when you're investing, even if you're great at it, you're going to hit ten baggers for sure, but you're also going to lose money. And like you were saying, if if you come at it from an ethical point of view, you're a custodian of other people's money. You're helping other people with their life. There's a there's a trust that people have put in you. I like the way you use sacred trust. Because, you know, in a way, money represents a kind of life force. We trade our time for money. We invest ourselves in projects or businesses because we're looking to make a living for ourselves and support our families. Yeah, money, like everything else, has energy. And so you have to decide how you're going to use it. And mm -hmm. so one of the things Templeton said to me, which I, I, I kind of mocked at the time, at least in my own head, was he said to me, look, the, the single best investment you can make is to tithe, um, to give 10% of your earnings to, to charity to help other people. And he told me that he did, he did super tithing, where I think he said for every dollar that he spent on himself, he gave away $10. Wow. And I would have regarded that as kind of naive, wishful thinking. And ironically, at certain points in my life, I've ended up tithing because I think one of the things that you're doing is you're, it depends how mystical you want to be about it. But one, on one level, I think you're breaking your fear about money, your sense that you're not going to have enough and that you have to hoard and keep hold of it because you're not going to be okay. And so for me, the ability to give away money was actually quite important and liberating psychologically because it was it was me saying no no I think I'm even though I'm a writer and even though I've got to take care of my two kids and my wife and uh, and I have all these responsibilities I have faith that I'm actually going to be able to support myself and my family while giving money away and I think there's something there's something very powerful and liberating psychologically about that but I think also part of having a successful and abundant life is being able to share. So, so I spend a lot of time studying Kabbalah and there's this very fundamental idea that you, you receive to share. So you're trying to, you're trying to transform yourself over the course of your lifetime from this kind of ego driven sense of me, 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 what, what this great Kabbalist Ravash I called the, the desire to receive for the self alone. And then gradually, as you as you evolve, you're trying to transform that desire to receive for the self alone into what he called the desire to receive for the sake of sharing. And so you still want all of these blessings. You want to have money. You want to have good health. You want to have an interesting job. You want to have uh, a nice home, all of these things. But it's to share. It's not just for you. And I think that's one of the, the, the deep truths that we sort of sense is the case we kind of know it already but when you what, what someone like templeton saw that i didn't see is oh you're actually going to be so much happier if you don't just think it's for yourself if you share your money and so i think i looked at him as being kind of a, a self-righteous um slightly smug slightly pious sanctimonious guy telling me i um you know, here's what here's why I'm so wonderful and why I'm so righteous. And in fact, what he was really doing is saying to me, "Look, grow up, kiddo. Like, like there's there's this other way you need to understand um, the power of money and the power of sharing." And I was 
I was probably 30 years old. I'm, I'm 52 now. And I was, I think I was too immature yes. and too fearful and too selfish to understand it. And I feel like I've been in a, in a 22 year argument with Sir John Templeton where who, who's long dead now, but where I finally, I finally come to the point where I'm like, Oh, that's what he was trying to teach me. Hello everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine, dietary therapy for over two decades in New York city. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. I can remember things that my grandfather said or my grandmother said that in my early 20s, I was like, oh my God, you guys have no idea who I am or what I'm really about. I, I remember when I was in my early 20s, I, I was working as a craftsman. I was doing glass blowing because I didn't want a job with someone else. I didn't want someone else telling me what to do. And I liked working with my hands. I just wanted to do my own thing. And my grandmother, bless her heart, would tell all her friends, oh, my grandson, he's an entrepreneur. Hmm. Now, at the age of 22, being called an entrepreneur was, it was like, I'm not an entrepreneur. I hate entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs are all about money. I'm doing, you know, something interesting. Well, I want to tell you something. My grandmother was right. I am an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur means you've got an idea and then you got the nerve to go do something about it. And so I... Yeah, I get it. Sometimes we hear things and our ego is so caught up in who we think we are and who we want to be that there's no room for anything else. I love this idea of tithing as a practice of not getting rid of the ego, but softening it up a bit and changing the story from, oh my God, I don't have enough and what am I going to do to, yeah, I've got money to, to share. That yeah, and trying to that get gets to a whole a different place. point of view of, on 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 the world, doesn't it? Yeah, and trying trying to get to a place in a mindset where you you come from a place of abundance mm -hmm. and rather than a place of lack. And you know, I come I come from a background where you know my my family fled from Russia and Ukraine and Poland from persecution there and my I think you know my great grandfather I think left Mizrich where people like Chagall were from when he was 14 and he only spoke Yiddish and through scrappiness and intelligence my grandfather became an eye surgeon and my father became a judge and I was sent to these very privileged schools but there was always this sense of this is a this is a rough Darwinian world, you have to survive by your wits. It's all 
um, things fall apart. The center cannot hold, as Yates said, and and there's not enough for everyone. It's a zero-sum game. And part of my evolution over the last 20 or so years has been, whether, whether delusionally or not, I've come to believe, no, if you change your mindset, um, your life becomes so much happier. If if you have this sense of of abundance, your life becomes better. And I I sometimes I sometimes have that. Um, who, who's the cartoon character who runs off the cliff and it's kind of uh, looks down suddenly? It's like oh, Wiley E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Yeah. Yes, he's always so got I a bright idea that never works out. So I sometimes I sometimes doubt myself and I think maybe I'm just delusional. I'm a fool. But I actually think that this way of thinking makes for a much happier and better life. And so deciding that you're going to share, deciding that the universe is going to take care of you if you become more sharing, kinder, more compassionate, more giving, maybe it's delusional, but I, A, I believe it, and B, I think you create your own reality through your consciousness. And so if you if you shift from this sense of, oh my God, it's a zero-sum game. And so I better screw someone else so that I can get ahead. That that just doesn't work. It leaves it leaves everyone feeling depleted I, without wanting to be political. I think we saw it with the Trump era, right? Leaving a, leaving a trail of unpaid bills, lawsuits, suppliers that you screwed. It, 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 it doesn't work. That type of capitalism, it can make you very rich. But it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable and it creates dysfunction in other areas of your life. So Mm -hmm. maybe maybe you have a huge bank account, but you have no great friendships or your kids hate you or your your wife hates you. And I had this great conversation with Charlie Munger, who's um, Buffett's partner, Warren Buffett's partner for the last 40 years. And Munger is this 97-year-old polymathic genius. But it was very important for him um, not just to win this game and become financially independent, but the, the manner in which he won the game. And he was very, very moral about it, very upstanding. And he said to me, um, he talked about Sumner Redstone, who is this multi-billionaire, who I guess they were at Harvard Law School together. And he said, you know, Sumner Redstone had billions of dollars more than me. And so you could look at, you could look at his life as a success. You could say he's more successful than me. But he said, I don't see it that way. He said, it, it, nobody nobody loved Sumner. Nobody liked him. Even his wives and children didn't love him and didn't like him. And, and he just said, all my life, I've regarded Sumner Redstone as, a, as an example of what I don't want to be. And there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful line that I often quote from Warren Buffett, where he, he wrote a foreword to a biography of, of Munger. And he said, he said, in 41 years, I've never seen Charlie take advantage of anyone. And he said, I've seen him knowingly take the worst side of the deal with me and other people and take, take less of the credit and more of the blame than he deserved uh, time and time again. And when you think of that type of behavior, it, um, it, to, to use sort of David, Her- David Hawkins kind of terminology, I, I'm sort of a bit obsessed with David Hawkins, a very interesting writer that I encourage your, your listeners to listen to. Hawkins would say that kind of behavior makes you go strong. And mm. if, if you believe in kinesiology and the like, it makes you go strong. Whereas 
the sort of Trumpian behavior. It makes you go weak when you hear about that behavior. There's literally this, there's, I feel like a weakness in my chest. It's like you feel depleted and depressed. And so I think when you, when you look at people like Munger who behave honorably, it makes you feel better about life. And so I think, I think there's something deeply spiritual about how you use money, how you treat your partner, um, how you regard your clients. It's all uh, money, like everything else, is just a microcosm of how you behave in life, how, what your consciousness is. And so same with healing, right? You can go into it with the right consciousness or the wrong consciousness. And we're, we're all deeply flawed individuals. But I think having this awareness that you you want to serve in some way, you want to elevate other people. I, I see that in people like Templeton. And I would have I would have rolled my eyes and sighed at that yes. 20 years ago. And now here you are doing it. Ha. Huh. I we're trying. I'm you know, I'm still deeply flawed, but I'm, I'm at least I'm aware of the game. And so I'm playing a different game now where I'm I'm constantly thinking, okay, so how do I become kinder and more compassionate? How do I become more loving? How do I become more sharing? And there's still a part of me that's like, I don't really want to give away that much money because, yes. you know, I'm a writer. What if I'm not okay? And so it's still, it's still a conflict. It's not like a, it's not like a, you're, you're done and you won the game. It's a, it's always a, uh, um, it's a it's dynamic ongoing. thing. It's not ongoing. A static thing. It's unfolding. Yeah. I, I just want to, I just want to repeat this back for a second because it, it gives me hope. I, I find these to be deeply encouraging words that you just said. Deeply flawed and aware of the game. Deeply flawed and aware of the game. You know, here we are knowing our weaknesses, knowing our negativities, knowing the places where we don't live up to what we'd like to be. And recognizing that, sitting with it, being able to you know, attend to that along with everything else, that takes, well, I think it takes a bit of contemplation, it takes some heart, it certainly takes some time and it takes some maturity, kind of getting over our own reactivity. For, and, for me, part of it has been reducing the complexity of life to a few simple guidelines. So mm. you can keep saying, so, so for example, if I say to myself, okay, well, so I've learned from Rav Ashlag, that the, the, the game is really to transform the desire to receive for the self alone into the desire to receive for the sake of sharing. And over the course of my lifetime, that's kind of the game that we need to play. I think I, that to me resonates deeply. It resonates so, deeply for me as well. And what you said a moment ago about Charlie Munger and his assessment of Warren Buffett, you know, Warren Buffett, phenomenal investor, Easy to think, oh, yeah, there's that guy taking advantage of people. But no, Warren Buffett got to where he is by being the kind of person he is. And they're drawing extraordinary people into their life mm -hmm. because of the quality of their behavior. Mm -hmm. So so I had a conversation with Munger recently where he said to me, I don't really need to get much congratulation for behaving in a moral way. He's like, I'm just smart enough that I figured out the life works better when you're moral, that, that you even make more money when you're moral. And so there's something kind of wonderfully pragmatic about it. He, and maybe that's why I'm drawn to Munger more than Templeton is that for Templeton, there was a kind of piety and sanctimoniousness to it that I, I react against. Um, whereas for Munger, I suspect he is a, a 
pretty pious way, a, a pretty pious person in certain ways, but he's, but he's concealing it by saying, no, no, I'm just a pragmatist. And so he's actually um, behaving in a profoundly admirable way and claiming that it's just for pragmatic reasons. And so there's something uh, anti-sanctimonious about it, which, which appeals to me. And so I think when we're lectured to by people who are a little holier than thou, your natural cynicism and resistance comes up. And, and so what I like is Munger is saying, look, I just study what works and doesn't work and why. And so he has this sense that being, being more moral works. And there was, a, there was a beautiful discussion that I had with these two great investors in London. who were extraordinary. These guys, Nick Sleep and Case Sicaria. And when they started their fund that, that's been astonishingly successful, um, Case Sicaria, who's called, he calls himself Zach. Zach said to Nick, I want you to have 51% of the company and I'll have 49%. I don't want it to be 50-50. And he said, if we ever have a disagreement, I want you to make the final call. And Nick said to me, when someone hands you a loaded revolver and says, here, shoot me if you like, he's like, how can you possibly behave in anything except a noble and decent way? And so he said, their relationship is built on kindness. And so they had this fund that they ran for 13 years that beat the market by just an astonishing margin. They got to have about three and a half billion dollars in investors' assets, mainly for foundations and charities and the like. Then they closed the fund, returned all of the money and decided, yeah, we're going to spend the second half of our lives giving away most of our money in a way that creates maximum benefit. And so for them, the whole thing was kind of a, a spiritual metaphysical exercise. Uh, this is exactly money. what you're talking about with Kabbalah. Yeah. That you bring it in, not for yourself, although the self is partially involved, that's part of the equation, but bringing it in to share it. Yeah, you receive to share. And I, I remember asking a friend of mine who um, became a Kabbalah teacher, but used to work at Goldman Sachs. And he said to me once, William, do you know why you give? And I was like, well, yeah, you give so you can receive more. So, you, can, you, you know, and it was a reasonably good answer. And he said, no, William, you give so you can give more. <laughs> and it's kind of lovely that you create, you create this kind of flow in your life. And I, I believe that this is true. I may be naive. I may be deluding myself. But I look at these people who are very giving and they live in this state of abundance that's really quite wonderful. And, and I, I end the book by writing about an extraordinary guy called, called um, um, Arnold Dandenberg, who, who I describe as the most successful human being I've encountered in the I world. I really love that portion. You know, a lot of these investors, they came from nothing. Yeah. He came from less than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And Arnold, I mean, in a way... My whole description of Arnold is it's a, it's a sort of stealth spiritual story, right? Because in a way, he embodies the transformation of ego, of, of coming. Uh, uh, I mean, just, to, just to, give, to, to, to give your listeners a very brief glimpse of who Arnold was, who he is. He's now, now about 81. Um, Arnold was born on the same street as Anne Frank in Amsterdam, and he was a Jewish kid born in 1939 and spent the first couple of years in hiding. Um, 
And so some friends of his family hid him and his brother Sigmund behind this, this fake wall. But his parents realized that if the Nazis came and searched the house and he or Sigmund cried, they would all be caught and they'd be sent to Auschwitz. And the women and children were the first people to be killed in Auschwitz. And so his parents basically said, okay, we need to take this enormous gamble and try to smuggle these kids out of the house into the countryside. And so they contact the Dutch underground and this roughly 17-year-old girl from the Dutch underground who didn't know the Vandenberg family risks her life and her family's life to smuggle Arnold and Sigmund out of, out of the city, out of Amsterdam to the countryside. And Arnold spent the first, I guess, two years of his life in hiding, then four years in an orphanage um, being hidden. And then his parents, who did go to Auschwitz, survived miraculously. But when they came to pick him up at six, he didn't even recognize them. And he could barely walk. He could just sort of shuffle along on his knees because he was so malnourished. And then they end up moving to East Los Angeles a few years later to this really rough neighborhood. And he was just, you know, he was this thin, emaciated kid who was beaten up the whole time. And he once heard his mother saying, talking to a psychologist who was saying, well, yeah, we think probably he's a little dumb and he's probably got brain damage from being malnourished as a child. So he grew up thinking that he was stupid. He grew up without his, without his parents. He was separated from his brother Sigmund because his brother was put on a farm with a, with a childless couple. And so he had all that sense of, of rejection. So for many years, he resented his parents enormously because he thought that they had, they had abandoned him because they just didn't want him. He didn't understand. Then his father turned out to be, although a very decent man in many ways and a very upright man, was also violent and used to hit him until finally Arnold hit him back and his father just sort of slumped back crying in the living room. It was like, I can't believe my son would hit me. And Arnold's like, yeah, and if you do it again, next time I'm going to hit you first. And so he came out of the war with all this rage against his father, against his mother for abandoning him, his father for beating him up, the Germans for persecuting him and his family. They'd, they'd killed 90, uh, 39 members of the family. So full of rage and hatred and self-pity and his first marriage fell apart and his wife left him for another man. And somehow- Probably a smart move on her part. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And he was, and so he resented her massively. Mm. And over the years, he's transformed himself into this extraordinarily loving, kind, decent person, incredibly charitable, adores his wife who he's been with for, I don't know, 50 years. Um, is a very wonderful, nurturing, lovely woman, has an incredible relationship with his kids, including her, her kids from her previous marriage who just regard him as, as their father. I mean, he's just this, this really wonderful human being. And he, again, like Templeton, gained control over his inner landscape. And so he became obsessed with self-hypnosis and, so, and, and affirmations and the like. And so one of the things that he would do is he would just say to himself over and over again, no, I, I'm a loving person. And so he kind of trained himself out of that rage. He rewired himself. At a certain point, he forgave the Nazis. He forgave the Germans. He moved on. He didn't let it destroy his life. And so he transformed himself from, from a, a, a victim who had every right to feel victimized. I mean, he, he had been victimized. He had been physically abused, beaten up, um, 
that he transformed his own mind and in doing so became this incredible role model for how to become a more loving, kinder, more sharing person. And, and I quote him as the kind of headline in that last section of the book where he says, I'm the richest guy in the world. And he said, it's not because of my money. Uh, it's, it's because of the quality of his relationships, his health, he's obsessed with fitness and yoga and, and, and the like. And he just transformed himself. And that to me was an enormously heartening story that I wanted to share with readers. Because what I'm saying is, if you think you've been dealt a crap hand, if you think you had crappy parents or you got in a profession that didn't pay well, or you got in uh, a world that didn't understand you, here's a guy who had the worst possible hand and he played it so exquisitely that he's turned his life into an incredibly successful life. And wherever you go, you have people telling you about different ways in which Arnold has helped them and inspired them. Arnold, Arnold when I, I spent a couple of days with him in Austin, Texas, interviewing him. And at one point, right before I left, he, he got me to lie on his floor, on this mat, on his floor, and he hypnotized me so that he could instill more positive thoughts in my mind. Because he was like, no, no, William, you, you, you need to change what you're saying to yourself. And so to this day, I actually, I, I, I tend to do a kind of morning connection, some sort of Kabbalistic morning connection. And at the back of this prayer book, um, I, I do this sort of um, not very pious sort of a la carte version of this m- morning spiritual connection, um, where I take a few sort of highlights. But at the end, I've written various things at the back of my prayer book. And some of them are the, are the affirmations that he gave me back then a few years ago, because I'm trying to rewire my mind. And my life has improved because I change what I say to myself. And I, in the same way that I rolled my eyes at Templeton 22 years ago, I would have rolled my eyes at the thought of saying affirmations. I, I'm an English intellectual snob by, by, by training and nature. And the idea of saying, you know, whatever it is, you know, I, you know, that, that, you, you come from a place of abundance, that you live in a place of abundance, that you'll always be prosperous, that, that uh, things like that. I, I mean, I, I, I would misquote these things, but those are the sort of messages that I'm saying to myself where, where um, um, yeah, I, I, and I guess I, I guess I changed the affirmations at a certain point because I realized I didn't just want to be saying, you know, I will be prosperous. I'll always be prosperous. I was like, no, I'm yeah, prosperous it, now. It, I live in a place tense. of abundance yes. and I'm being taken care of. And I'm, I'll always be, I always feel the sense of abundance. And, and Arnold said to me at one point, he's like, William, I could lose all of the money that I have and I would still be rich. He said, if I had nothing, I would still be rich because I come from a place of abundance and prosperity. And so the understanding that this is a kind of mental game that so much of one of the great Kabbalists I studied with, Strike Rav Berg, he would say over and over again, consciousness is everything. And so your consciousness about money and about um, wh- whether you're victimized or whether you're blessed, things like that, just coming, f- reminding yourself over and over again that, that you're profoundly blessed. And to have this sense of deep appreciation is 
kind of transformative. And so, what, I mean, one of the things that I do try to say to myself every day that, that also is written in, in the back of this prayer book is there's a wonderful Hebrew phrase, gamtsu tova, which, which means, and, and this too is for the best. And it's something that comes from the teacher of Rabbi Kiva a couple of thousand years ago, where every, so these guys were persecuted to tremendous, I mean, Rabbi Akiva, you know, was killed in the most brutal way. They, they went through hell, these guys. But they would say, but, but they had this consciousness that everything happened for a reason, that, that even, even the, these things that seem incredibly dark are just light, that it's just concealed. And so when the temple was burning down, the, the temple in, in Jerusalem, which, which they would regard as kind of the, the energetic center of the universe, you, you know what Rabbi Akiva did? He literally, according to law, he started dancing. So he's watching the flames and he starts dancing because he embodies this idea of, no, no, this too is for the best. Gamsula Tova, nothing, everything is from the light. So if you think about changing your mindset so that every time you're getting the crap kicked out of you, when your relationship doesn't work out or your financial situation doesn't work out, you're like, no, no, this is, this is from the light too. This is, this is a blessing too. It's an incredibly powerful idea. And so Templeton would will be looking down on me now saying, ah, now you get it, moron. You know, but, but you could have saved yourself 22 years of trouble if you'd listened to me back then. And, and there was a moment a few years ago, I write about this in, the, in the, this section on, on notes and additional sources to, to read in my book. Um, there was a moment a few years ago where I was reading a book of his that was, it was some spiritual laws of the universe, something like that. And um, I literally blushed as I was reading it. I felt my face redden and I literally groaned out loud. I was like, oh, I had this terrible re realization. I was like, I could have saved myself so much grief if I hadn't been so close-minded, if I had listened to what he was saying to me 22 years ago about this is the way the universe works. These are kind of the fundamental laws of the universe. Understand them and try to align yourself with them. And instead I was so close-minded and judgmental and biased. And so oddly, one of the great lessons from Templeton that I've tried to uh, adopt in my own life is that spirit of open inquiry of just saying, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I have all these biases that are going to make me misunderstand things. So let me remain open-minded. And, and Templeton, who, you know, was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, who came top of his class at Yale and was a brilliant guy, said to me, he tracked all of his decisions, something like half a million decisions, I think, uh, as an investor for many years. And he said, a third of the time I was wrong. And he, he used this wonderful phrase. He said, it was the opposite of wisdom. And so <laughs> someone as smart, yeah, so someone as smart as Templeton displayed the opposite of wisdom a third of the time. You have to be extremely humble about your own your own flaws, your own narrow-mindedness, your own bias. And to say, well, this was a great lesson from one of the one of the billionaire investors. I write about a guy called Jeffrey Gundlach. I write about him very briefly, but he said something very powerful to me, which he said, he, he said he's found that he's wrong about a third of the time as well. And he said to me, so I need to ask, what's the consequence if I'm wrong? So you're so before you make any decision, you're accepting with some humility 
that you're deeply flawed and you're and, and, and you're limited in your cognitive powers and you're biased and you're saying, so if I'm wrong, what's the consequence? And, and because the, inv- the greatest investors are tremendous pragmatists, they're not deluding themselves into believing that their own beliefs are necessarily superior to everyone else's. It's, it's um, what's that lovely phrase? Um, strong opinion, strong opinions, lightly held, something like that. You, so you want, you want to have powerful convictions, but they should be lightly held. So you can say, well, I believe this is true, but I may be wrong. And so in case I'm wrong, let me hedge against my own fallibility. Or, or let me be less judgmental of other people. So if other people disagree with you, um, to say, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a New York Jewish liberal, right? I, my natural bias is to assume that, that Trump was an appalling human being and that his policies were appalling. And, but I have to also say, well, I have this filter of biases, that makes it difficult for me to see certain things or to see the nuances in situations. So I can't, and we all have I can't those. just, yeah, we all but have to those be biases. aware, self-aware and a little less, a little lighter mm-hmm. in our, a little less dogmatic, a little less judgmental of others. I, I think that's a very, again, it's like, it's useful as an investor, but it's actually really useful in life. You talk about the temple burning down. And, and as, a, as we're having this conversation, I think of the temple as the ego. Or you could look at the temple as the ego. It's like we mm. all have temples that could use some burning down and, and, you know, and dance at that liberation mm. from you know, what we, you know, the orthodoxy, our own damn orthodoxy. We think we're so flipping smart. I got this. I know this. And the world will let us know if we're right or if we're wrong on no uncertain terms. And sometimes, yeah, things burn down. Our life burns down in places. And someone, someone once told me that the, the, the temple has been burned down twice over the last three and a half, 4,000 years, something like that. And he said that the, the temple won't be physically rebuilt. He said the next time it's going to be a matter of consciousness. And he said the, the conscious, it's going to be a critical mass of people who believe in basically love for no reason that what 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 the Kabbalists would often say is the reason the temple was destroyed was because of hatred for no reason so mm-hmm. there were a lot of um people who because they were sort of jealous of each other or resented each other that was kind of the spiritual cause underlying the the physical destruction of the temple and so what's the antidote to hatred for no reason it's love for no reason so it's looking at people who are different from you who 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 you disagree with, who vote for the opposite party of you uh, that, that you support, who who represent different different race, different creed, different different everything, and you look at them and you have love for no reason rather than hatred for no reason. And that's so powerful. That is that sounds like a powerful practice. I imagine myself taking that on and failing at it way more than I succeed. Ha! Huh. But at least again, as we were saying before, knowing that that's the knowing that that's the game that that's what we're moving towards mm-hmm. and so you're you're asking to have that consciousness you're asking to have that gift of love for no reason and so i think this is one of the things that i've learned from kabbalah that i think is a very beautiful idea is 
you're, you're trying to remove separation between you and other people, between your head and your heart, between body and soul, whatever it is, you're constantly removing separation. And I think this is one of the reasons why I love studying Buddhism as well. Like if, if you study Tibetan Buddhism, for example, you just get this sense that you're, you're trying to see that everything is one. There is no separation. And so this is, I think this runs through all spiritual paths. You could, I mean, I'm not, not that knowledgeable about this. So, I, you know, uh, fact check me. But, um, but I think that sense that you're trying to reach a place where you see no separation. And so, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to, that I'm thinking about, because I'm, I'm consciously trying to rewire my brain when I do my morning connection, for example. So I'm, I'm saying, okay, so how do, help me to re- remove fragmentation and separation. Mm, that's, a, that's a fine prayer, isn't it? I, yeah, that to me, I mean, that's, that's what the, the so, so for me, part of the beauty of all of these Kabbalistic prayers is that there's a kind of intentional consciousness concealed within them. And so you look at it in a superficial sense and you're like, yeah, it's just a bunch of words saying, you know, God is great. God does this. Please, God, thank you, God. You know, which when I was a kid, I looked at going to synagogue and I was like, Jesus, really, I have to have to go through this. Why does God need all of this praise? And and now I look at it and I'm like, no, no, it's the consciousness behind it is. So, for example, when you're talking about like connecting to the tree of life, what you're really talking about is a state of consciousness well, there's no separation, there's no fragmentation. It's just love, kindness, compassion, mercy. And so you're constantly trying to give strength to love, kindness, compassion, mercy, and the like, truthfulness. And so I think I think people like Templeton, who is a devout Christian, um, Arnold Vandenberg, who's Jewish but has never really studied Judaism, he's really a very open-minded kind of multi-faith spiritual seeker, they've all tapped into the same thing the sense that you're so when 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 arnold was rewiring himself just by saying over and over again i'm i'm a loving person um he's tapping into the same thing you're just constantly trying to shift the balance within your own mind towards love mercy kindness compassion truthfulness a sense of abundance desire to share more and i think because your consciousness creates your own reality. When you try to put your mind in those places, at a certain point, it it becomes true. You actually feel more sense of abundance, more sense of appreciation. And so you can come at this, you you can reach the same truth through any path um, because everything is a microcosm of something bigger, right? And uh, I think at least. And so... I don't think it really matters what your spiritual path is or whether you even believe anything. I, I, I just think if you, if you rewire your consciousness and you try to elevate your consciousness, um, your life becomes better. And the, the physical circumstances of your life, I think, become better as well because you're going to draw better people into your life. People trust you more. You're more positive. And so whether there's a kind of mystical force at play or whether it's just a very practical thing that, as Munger would say, if you behave better, um, if you behave morally, you're going to make more money because people are going to trust you. It almost doesn't matter. I, I tend to adopt the more mystical um, 
the more mystical reading but just because i i kind of i i'm i guess i've become more wired that way but i regard it but i regard these things as practically true mm-hmm. as well if you behave in a different way and you think in a different way you change your reality two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using chinese herbal medicine even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. You will, you will be a different way. One of the things that I, I have loved about your book, and I've got all these little areas that I go back and read again and again, because they're just, they're like concise little bits of inspiration isn't the right word. It's almost like an operating manual. And in some ways, your book is shot through with this spiritual perspective. I think it's one of the reasons I was so drawn to it. And the other piece of it is it is shot through with all this phenomenal, extremely useful, practical advice. So I just want to give you a couple of these Mm. because on one hand, these are simple and mundane. And on the other hand, they've already changed my life in terms of some ways that I look at what I'm going to call wealth. Money's related to wealth, but they're not necessarily the same thing. One is from, I think it was Arnold, who said, why should you have money? Here's a reason to have money, so you don't have to take shit from anybody. Mm. It was He, he yeah. was the one who said that, right? Yeah, exactly. And I just, it's like I slapped myself in the forehead, and I thought, why didn't I see that earlier? I could have avoided a lot of trouble had I just had enough resources to, to get through things in a different way. Why is a good reason to have money? Money's not a bad thing. Why? Because you don't have to take shit from other people. It's partly yeah, why thing, I'm self-employed. The thing that money gives you, money gives you a, a bunch of different things, right? So superficially, it can give you all of these toys and baubles, right? So, at, Which is also fun. Extreme, yeah. At the extreme, there are people, I mean, I mean, there's a very great investor, a guy called Ed Thorpe, that I write about. And, I, and he's, a, he's a really profound and wonderful thinker. And, and he's in his 80s. And I said to him, are there any possessions of yours that you really love? And he said, actually, yeah, I love my Tesla. It's a really beautiful car. And I love the fact that I live in a house that has a view of Laguna Beach. And it's really beautiful. And I get to see sunsets and I get to run on the beach and exercise, exercise outdoors and sail. It's lovely. So I'm not dismissing what money can get you in physical terms. But what all of these great investors said to me 
is that what really the money gives you is independence. Mm-hmm. That 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 was what they really yearned for was not to be subservient to somebody else telling them what to do, to to be to operate in a way that's in alignment with who you are. And and to find out who you are. Yeah, and in all of its idiosyncratic ways. So I write about a guy called Irving Khan who lived to the age of 109. And I interviewed him when he was 108. And here's a guy who wanted to work till the age of 109. I mean, what his money gave him was not the ability to retire. It it gave him the ability to keep playing this game that he loved until the age of 109. He would commute after 100. He continued to take the subway or the bus to his office in midtown Manhattan. That's not what most of us would choose to do. But he lived in a way that was in deep alignment with who he was. And he he didn't care about having vacations or going to the opera or or the theater. He bought thousands of books because he was a deeply intellectual man. He loved the problem solving of figuring out new technology, new companies, where the where the future was going in business and economics. And he didn't overreach. And so he lived massively within his means. So he didn't have a lot of stress about paying the next bill. And he came from a, you know, he lived, he started investing in 1928, right before the Great Depression. So he lived through terrible times. And so what what the money gives you is that sense of independence. So you can live in a way that's true to who you are and not worrying about paying the bills. And those are not insignificant things. And so I feel less sheepish about writing about money than I would have done 25 years ago when I would have thought it was kind of crass and vulgar and not very high-minded. And and now I look at it and I'm like, no, what could be more important than living in a way that's deeply in alignment with who you are? And if I can afford not to write about people I dislike or not to work for, I mean, I worked for magazines where I had kind of appalling bosses at times. And I was able to quit and go write books. And if I hadn't invested, I mean, I'm not a massively successful or massively rich investor or anything like that. But the fact that I invested and that I cared about money and I cared about saving, I lived within my means, I didn't have debt and stuff like that, that actually gave me the freedom to write. And I mean, this book took me five years to work on. Even if you get a good advance, which I did, I mean, I got a decent advance in the grand scheme of things. It's uh, to to be able to work for five years on a book. Um, I mean, that's not a very lucrative approach to life. And so I was able. So so I've been able to use the fact that I cared about investing, understanding the principles of investing and saving and the like. That that's given me a lot of freedom to do creative work that I care about. It's meaningful for me. But there's a really important nuance here, which is you don't need it. million, $5 million, $3 million, a billion dollars to live in a way that's truly in alignment with yourself. You you need to think about what the things are that really matter to you. And they're often not that expensive. I mean, I I don't need to be living in a palatial home. Um, I like the fact I I live in a pretty eccentric home that has floor to ceiling windows because it's a mid-century modern house that's full of light. And I really like that. It's kind of cool, and it doesn't have a it doesn't have a a driveway or a garage, and I don't care about that. It doesn't have a proper lawn. It's like all rocky and stuff, which is great. I've never mowed a lawn in my life, 
have no intention of doing that. You know, so I've found a place that's kind of in alignment with who I am. It doesn't require a ton of, of yard work from me or maintenance or whatever. I don't care about my car. I don't think I've, I, I, I'm slightly sheepish to say it. I've literally not once got my car washed in seven years. Um, I think my wife has probably got it washed a few times, but I've never taken Someone's got to look after you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I don't care about that stuff. But I buy an enormous number of books because I care about that. Yes. And so for me, living in a way that's in alignment with who I am is partly not working for people I dislike. It's, it's only working with people I like and admire. It's only doing stuff that I believe has some enduring value. And that's, that's a tremendous luxury that doesn't have to be enormously expensive, but knowing what, this is one of the things I've learned from so the great I, investors. I want to challenge you on this for a moment. Yeah. Is it really a luxury or is it a kind of foundation that allows you to do the kind of work that you're called to do? Yeah, it's both, right? But in some ways, it's the ultimate luxury to do what you love and what you're good at and what you regard as valuable. Is it a luxury or is it our responsibility? Yeah, both. And it's a gift. It's a blessing. But but even knowing that that's the game, that mm. that's what you're after is really valuable. And so here I am writing about people with billions of dollars. And I don't think it takes billions of dollars to know Oh, I need to live in a way that's in alignment with who I am. And I need to know that I have to share more. And I need to know that there needs to be some mission beyond my own, beyond my own ego. And so, so for me, I'm drawing these fairly practical lessons from people who've hit the jackpot financially. And so one of the things I can see from them is this is something I learned from Ed Thorpe, the guy I mentioned before, who, who liked his Tesla and his view. Um, of the ocean, he said to me, look, the single most important thing ultimately is who you spend your time with. And so here's a guy who he, he figured out how to beat the casino at blackjack. Then he figured out how to beat the casino at roulette. Then he figured out how to create a hedge fund that didn't have a losing quarter in 20 years. He's a genius at gambling. He's one of the world's great gamblers. And so I'm asking him, if you were approaching life as a game, and you said, how do I stack the odds in my favor in, in life to have a successful life, just as you beat the casino at blackjack and roulette? What would you do? And he's like, it's, it all comes down to relationships. So, so yeah, I love my, my house and my Tesla, but ultimately it's who do I spend my time with? And so just that simplification of knowing, okay, the people, the people who've hit the jackpot, the ones who are happy, understood that what really matters is their relationships that's incredibly helpful and clarifying for me because it means I don't have to live in this state of fantasizing that if I make a certain amount of money, then I'm going to be happy. Or if I get a bigger house or if I get a more beautiful or cleaner car, in my case, I'm going to be happy. It's really, I, I really have to prioritize relationships. And this sounds very platitudinous and obvious, like most truths. But what it means for me is when I'm torn about how to spend my time and say my daughter, who's 20, who's living with us at the moment, I have a 23-year-old son who, who moved out a couple of weeks ago. But when my daughter's here and I'm trying to think, wait, should I be having this conversation with my daughter 
or should I be focusing on my work right now? Or should I be looking at my phone right now? I have to remind myself, no, there's nothing that's more important to the quality of my life and to my happiness and my sense of abundance and true prosperity than building a good relationship with my daughter. There's nothing more important than that. And so if, if like Munger, you're just looking at what works, what doesn't work and why, you have to say, well, investing in my relationships is utterly critical. And so how, how do you build good relationships? There's, there's again, a wonderful, a wonderful observation from Charlie Munger where he says, if, if you want a good spouse, deserve one. What an, what an incredible observation. I mean, here we are so full of a sense of victimization of like, this person doesn't understand me, no one loves me, no one treats me right. Here's, here's the ultimate pragmatist, Munga, who, who, whose first marriage ended in divorce after their son died of leukemia at the age of nine, and they lost all of their money, and they went through tremendous pain and struggle, but had a very successful second marriage for decades. Um, but then has lost, uh, you know, he's 97, his wife died after many years, his second wife. So he's, he's experienced good and bad relationships. And he's saying, well, how do you have a, have a good spouse? Deserve one. And he said the same thing about partnerships. Like when I asked him about what made for a happy life, he immediately talked about his relationship with Buffett. And he said, I've been a good partner to him and he's been a marvelous partner to me. And he said, the system is easy. He says, if, if you want to have a good partner, be a good partner. And that's an incredibly profound and simple observation that it's, it's not about saying, no, no, the other person's got to behave better because I'm going to take, take, take. It's, okay, let me be a good partner. And if, and if you focus on that in other areas of life, if you extrapolate from that, you say, well, so how do I, how do I have a good relationship with my child? Let me be a good father. How do I have a good relationship with my friends? Let me be a good friend. And so for me, this has been tremendously clarifying because for a long time, I was so busy getting ahead professionally. I didn't really focus that much on my friends or my family. I neglected them. And, and so understanding that what constitutes a truly abundant life is um, having great relationships, having financial independence, having security, doing doing what you want to do, what you love, making a contribution to others, sharing more. This, this has just been tremendously clarifying for me. And so what I'm trying to do in writing about this stuff and talking about it is just clarify in my own mind what works and what doesn't work and why, and then share those ideas with other people. And I, I think when you, when you try to teach something to other people, when you try to share ideas to other people, it forces you to think them through for yourself. And so it's much more powerful, I think, than when you're just thinking it through because you want to get ahead yourself. And so it, the, the, the act of trying to distill what's true and what works um, so that you can share it with other people has, has also, I think, been a, a wonderful thing for me. I think, I think it's, so again, it's like I'm receiving to share. It's the great Kabbalistic truth. It's like I want to receive this wisdom so my own life can be better. But I also want to share this wisdom. Yes, yes. I, I think we all, when we're having some kind of good experience, having someone to share it with makes it even sweeter. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I in a mystical sense, I kind of believe that when you're trying to help other people, mm. you tap into 
you tap into truths that might not be available to you if it were just for you and just for your own ego. And I don't know whether this is true, but I think... Well, you know, I don't know if it's true, but I'll tell you, even if it's not, I would rather take that path and investigate it and see what it has to say. The jury's still out for me on this, but that's the path I'd rather take. It's like, let's investigate this. Let me try it with my own life. So one of the things, Michael, sorry to interrupt you, one of, one of the things that I say to myself over and over again that I'm slightly sheepish about saying because it, it makes me sound like a sanctimonious Sir John Templeton that I would have rolled my eyes at 20 years ago. One of the things I say to myself over and over again is, let me be a force for good. Just let me be a force for good. And so if I keep repeating that to myself, if, if before I come on a podcast or before I write an article or I, before I write something that day in a book, I'm, you know, maybe I'm lost, maybe I'm confused, maybe I don't know what I should do, maybe I'm overwhelmed, maybe I'm stressed or whatever, afraid of failure, afraid of misfiring or whatever. But if I just say to myself, let me just be a force for good, that's very clarifying. It kind of rebases you, it regrounds you. And, and I think it also... In practical terms, whether you think that you're tapping into, you know, the the deep mysteries of the universe because the universe conspires to help you if you're if you want to share, whether that's true or not, I think in practical terms, um, it softens you because instead of my thinking, uh, God, will will everyone think I'm smart? Will everyone think I'm um, too fat? Will everyone think I'm you know, I've lost some hair. Will they think? Will they think I'm stupid? If you're just thinking, let me try to say something that's helpful. Let me try to try to tap into, yeah, just you're, you're trying to be a force for good. I think it softens you around the stress, the fear of being judged, the fear of being wrong, and maybe that softening gives a little more space for good stuff to come through. And I I suspect that's the case with doctors, healers and the like. But if, if, I mean, my my daughter was very sick recently. She got a staph infection and was in hospital for about 10 days. And and now, thank God, she's she's very, very much better. And, uh, you know, but she had surgery on her hip and stuff. And so we really saw a lot of different medical practitioners and you you see the good and the bad. And some of them were so extraordinary. And I think when you see people who are sort of full of ego and are not really listening, um, there's a lack of spaciousness. And when you see people who are deeply present and deeply there and deeply trying to share and help, there's a difference. There's a sort of softness around them. There was an extraordinary, um, an extraordinary technician at this hospital who I just saw her um, making sure that when my daughter came out of surgery, she was just going to be by her holding her hand. And it's an extraordinary thing when you see that, you, you know, that that's love for no reason. Right. And so that's, um, I mean, that's a very evolved human being who's behaving in that way. And so I, I think she wasn't worrying about, am I the smartest person here? Do I have the knowledge of the doctors? Do I, you know, she's just giving love and support to a scared 20 year old girl who's in tremendous pain and so i think i think when you get out of your own way and you try to focus on helping other people you become so much more deeply present 
And you, you, so, so in a way, these are the most profound and the most simple and platitudinous truths on earth, right? You get, you set aside your own ego and you focus on helping other people and you're softer, you're more present, you're more open, you're more able to listen, you're more able to help. And, and I think that's the same in any field, whether, whether you're writing, speaking, healing. I, I, my, my father-in-law was a wonderful doctor for many years, retired a couple of years ago. And I suspect the reason he was such a wonderful doctor is he just truly loved his patients. And there was such a kindness and a compassion. And anytime I was writing an article about something, I, he would say, oh, you should talk to this friend of mine. And I'd say, how do you know them? And he'd say, oh, he's a patient of mine. And so I, I don't know. I mean, he could have been sticking needles in you. He could have been using a scalpel. He could have been studying your blood. It wouldn't have mattered what his, what his, um, what his mode of, of operation was. He was just a loving, compassionate, kind, caring person. And, his and mode so I was suspect, love. Yeah. His mode was love. Yeah. And connection. It does soften people. Yeah. Um, well, William, I could go on for a while. This is the, this topic, first of all, of the way that we are in the world kind of knowing that we're these flawed beings and aware of the game and that we can do something about it in our own mind, in our own heart is, you know, whether you're a writer or an acupuncturist or a big time investor. And clearly these, these people that you write about, you share their heart, you share their spirit. They were, they're all connected. All the ones that, that you've talked to that are in this book, you give us a glimpse of people who really have lived an extraordinary life. And it's not just because of what they got, but because of how they were. And so I, I so appreciate you taking the five years plus mm. all the other experience that was distilled into this particular book. It's uh, It's been, I don't know if I've, I don't know if it will help me to be a better investor. It has certainly helped me to be a better human. Hmm. And, uh, and I have fewer barriers to how I was thinking about money. I'm on a little bit more friendly terms as a result. So deeply appreciative oh, for your that's, work that's and for this time place. today. Thank you. And I, I love the idea that it's resonated for someone like you because I am... Um, in, in some strange way, it is a stealth spiritual book. I'm telling people, here's how you invest. Here's how you make money. But it's, 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 it's like being a healer. It includes everything. It's a microcosm of everything. You can, um, you, you can be a healer who is connected just to the head and has forgotten the heart, or you can be one who's got head and heart. And it's, uh, you could be... Brilliant but unethical, or ethical and not so brilliant. You know these these things are microcosms of everything, and so it's it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the world of investing or the world of healing. I think it's it's all about how how do you how do you build a truthful, authentic, decent life where you'll look back at the end of it and say. Yeah, I conducted myself pretty well, despite all of my flaws. 
and all of my failings and all of my ignorance and and blundering around i really tried to be a decent human being and i tried to improve and i tried i tried to help other people and and so it's all the same it's all the same it's all it's all just trying to navigate our way through the fog in a in a decent moral way that that it, despite our despite our flaws will 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 be well well remembered and and we have satisfaction in the the way we played the game and and so when i when i look at someone like munger who's 97 um i think he looks back with a a tremendous sense of his accomplishment at having played the game honorably uh he, he doesn't wish he had a few more billion dollars he's he's <laughs> he's happy that he treated people decently yes that's wonderful well again thank you so much for the book and thank you for your time today this has been an uh, absolute thank you. delight it's been a real pleasure thanks so much why I keep picking up and thumbing through richer, wiser, happier. Not unlike I pick up a book on herbs or points and revisit the foundations of our medicine. I think it's because I'm intrigued and curious about dealing with uncertainty and impermanence. It's part of my meditative practice. It certainly shows up in working with patients as health issues are fraught with uncertainty and simply watching life unfold it's impossible not to be tugged by the riptides of uncertainty. But when reading this book, I was thinking that contemplating uncertainty and impermanence from my meditation cushion, that's one thing. Dealing with uncertainty and impermanence when in the process of investing millions of other people's money, well, that is some high-level gong fu. What about you? What do you lean on to guide you through uncertain times or moments of ground-shaking change? Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.